Welcome to episode 194 of This Week in Linux, recorded live on April 16th, 2022. I'm your host, Michael Tunnell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. On this week's episode, we've got some distro news, app news, gaming news, and some hardware news to cover. All of this and so much more coming up right now on your weekly source for Linux. Good news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. Up first in the show this week, we have the latest release of the LXQt desktop environment, and that is 1.1.0 has been released. There's a lot of changes, so we're only going to cover the highlights. But first, we have two new application menu layouts, and this is for the start menu slash main menu that you have on the panel. And they have two different new options. One is simple. That is a minimal menu layout. Another one is called compact, which is even more minimal than the simple. So if you want to see what that means, I'll have links in the show notes for that. There are details on that one. Also, the, there's color palette matching that they have changed to be more um, compatible with dark themes of the system, making it easier to achieve an overall like uniformed look of the, of the desktop environment, which is very nice. I personally use dark mode quite a bit, almost always, not always, but almost always. Uh, they've also made some changes to the directory menu. They've improved the, with some additional style options, and they've also changed some default settings of the desktop environment. Now, they, they actually say, and I quote, most distributions will ship their own settings, but nevertheless, we improve the default look. Here's the changes they made. First of all, they made the main menu search is now cleared after an action is performed. This is good because there was previously that if you did a search, the text that you searched for is still there, so you have to clear it out and then do another search. So I'm glad to see that they have made that because it's it'll be a lot more convenient for the user. They've also changed the way, like the, the look of the taskbar buttons. They've also made it where home, network, computer, and trash icons are shown on the desktop by default for those who like to use their desktop. They've also uh, changed the default theme, wallpaper, and icons to a new, more modern feel for the LXQt desktop environment. They've also made some ch changes and improvements to the color picker, picker panel widget, which is for basically being able to uh, select anywhere on the screen and getting the hex code for that color, which is good for people who do design and stuff like that, such as myself. So I was happy to see that. Uh, they've also got a lot more that are in this, that is in this release. And if you'd like to learn more about this release of LXQt 1.1.0, link in the show notes. Up next in the show is some really interesting news from the SUSE team. And this is a next generation of SLE or SUSE Linux Enterprise. Now it's been four years since the introduction of SLE 15 or SUSE Linux Enterprise 15. And SUSE is now working towards the successor and it seems there'll be some big changes. In this period of time of working on SLE 15, SUSE and OpenSUSE has already gone through some pretty big changes that were quite innovative in development and community interactions. They've also done some integrations with Open, OpenSUSE and SUSE way more than they had before. And I'm referring to the jump era, as I like to call it, where SLE or SUSE Linux Enterprise became closer integrated with OpenSUSE, both Leap and Tumbleweed. And we covered this much more detail in a previous episode. If you'd like to learn more, I'll have that linked in the show notes. There are reports that this will be some maybe radical changes for the technology and design with their new adaptable Linux platform for SLE as they are working on this next generation of the SUSE Enterprise operating system. So SUSE's Stefan Bielert has said in a quote, since 2018, when SLE 15 was initially released, a lot of things have changed, including requirements from, for users and customers, technologies, the speed of new versions of applications, languages and their libraries, 
Also, the connection between Leap and Slee has changed, and while some bits and pieces got better, we firmly believe we can do better. Slee 15 is a great general purpose operating system, yet challenges with some use cases. Now places of deployment and the type of enhancement requests show that it's time for a successor. Now, we do not have a ton of information and details about what's being changed, but they have elaborated a little bit on this on their mailing list. So a quote from the mailing list says, First and foremost, ALP will be developed in the open. We're not going to put the pieces together internally and then share outside as in the past. We are creating and building the, the in the OpenSUSE build service and a project next to you. You get to see what is going on and participate more easily. I think that it's very cool to have this you know open approach to doing the development. I think that's really interesting. So I want them to do that regardless of where they go in the future of the next generation or not. But let's go back to the quote. Another important point is that we intend to split. Everything is closely intertwined into two parts. One's smaller hardware enabling piece, a kind of host OS, and then another layer providing and supporting applications, which will be container and VM based. You might say, this is very generic. Can you tell us more? Of course, in the upcoming weeks, more and more will crystallize and we will share as quickly and as regularly as possible. So the question of uh, this might be, this seems very generic. Can you tell us more? No, but in a couple weeks we will. <laughs> That's what that really means. But it's kind of funny. Anyway, this is just a first heads up to inform you that we are in the process of setting everything up from projects to feedback channels, from documentation to testing. So this is really interesting because, well, in my opinion, this concept is, you know, it's cool, but I feel like it doesn't cover all the bases for what SUSE e ecosystem targets. For example, this might be great for an enterprise server or maybe even a workstation desktop where you deploy it in an enterprise setting for hundreds or thousands of users or for IoT deployments for that matter. However, I feel like this isn't ideal for most other use cases. Due to the integration of SUSE and OpenSUSE, then I assume that this would mean that OpenSUSE Leap would also adopt this model. And personally, I don't think that that's the best approach for a desktop offering. I really like the idea of the microOS options that SUSE has, but it sounds like this is a merge of microOS into SUSE. And while that might be good in some use cases, in my opinion, it could be a negative to other use cases. So I'm not really sure exactly how I feel about this at the moment, but there are some benefits to it. There are also some negatives I can see. So it just depends on what more crystallizes in the future. So if you'd like to learn more about the current state of what the next gen of OpenSUSE or SUSE Linux Enterprise will be, I have links in the show notes. Up next in the show, MX Linux 21.1 has been released. This is the first point release of the MX Linux 21 series. It has uh, bug fixes, kernel updates, and application updates. It's based on Debian 11.3. So MX Linux 21.1 brings back the disk manager utility to the ISO images, adds various improvements to the installer, updates many of the pre-installed packages, and introduces the MX Samba config utility for those who want to configure Samba and SIF shares. The, the biggest thing I think is the most important thing about this latest release is that the AHS version, or the hardware enablement version, has Linux 5.16 included in this latest release. If you'd like to learn more about MX Linux or check out the latest version of MX Linux 21.1, I'll have links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. 
At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your team can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. And with DigitalOcean, you also get predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. That's DigitalOcean. So get started at DigitalOcean by going to do.co slash tux2022. And also with DigitalOcean, you get support at every stage of growth from teams of one person to teams of a thousand people. With simple, powerful cloud computing, you can get growing at DigitalOcean. And as a listener and, and of the this, this Week in Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Like I said, go to do.co slash tux2022. But you're not just getting started for free. They're actually going to make it even better for you because you get a $100 free credit when you go to that URL. That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform when you go to do.co slash tux2022. And I want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is the latest release of OpenRazor 3.3. For those unfamiliar with its application, OpenRazor is a community project providing open source Linux drivers for various Razor devices, from their keyboards and mice to headsets and other peripherals. Razer doesn't provide configuration software themselves, unfortunately, but this is yet another example of how awesome the Linux community is because this was a community project created to support the devices anyway, which is awesome. Uh, OpenRazer 3.3 adds support for some newer Razer products, quite a few actually. Uh, there's the Basilisk V3, the Huntsman Mini, the Huntsman V2, the Blade, 5, or the, the Blade 15 and the Blade 17, the Raptor 27, a lot more. If you don't know what these are, we'll have links in the show notes for more details and also the full list of all the devices that are now supported. Uh, also, OpenRazor 3.3 has a number of bug fixes and other minor improvements for these Razer devices on Linux. And also, I want to, if you've never used Open, Open Razor or you're curious about it and you have a Razor product or you don't have a Razor product but are interested in getting one, then you can check out the FPL article for Front Page Linux that is talking about how to control your Razor devices on Linux with Open Razor. So this is a great tutorial that walks you through the whole process. And you can check that out on, in frontpagelinux.com. I'll have a link for details on that article as well as a link to the latest release of Open Razor 3.3 in the show notes. Up next in the show, we've got some hardware news. And to start off, we have Razer plus Lambda have combined together to make the TensorBook laptop. So Lambda is a provider of deep learning in, uh, infrastructures. They have teamed up with Razer to build the a Linux-powered laptop for deep learning. And they quote, this is a quote from the Lambda team. It says, most ML engineers don't have a dedicated GPU laptop, which forces them to use shared resources on a remote machine, slowing down their development cycle. When you're stuck SSHing into a remote server, you don't have any of your local data or code, and even have a hard time de demoing your model to colleagues. The Razer Plus Lambda TensorBook solves this problem. So they claim it is the world's most powerful Ubuntu Linux laptop designed for deep learning. So let's talk about the specs. First of all, the, G the GPU is an NVIDIA RTX 3080 Max Q with 16 gigabytes of VRAM. The processor is an Intel Core i7 11800H, and uh, it's just, that name just rolls right off the tongue. It's 64 gigabytes of RAM, two terabytes of NVMe PCIe 4.0 storage. The display is a 165 hertz 1440p 15.6 inch display. They've got a lot of you know input output stuff like SD card reader, uh, USB C ports, uh, USB A ports. Uh, it's got HDMI support. And also, it comes with Ubuntu 20.04 LTS. 
Now, this sounds pretty interesting, especially with the specs. It seems very powerful and it's, it's you know, intriguing. But I do want to give you like a heads up. The price is, uh, it's a bit high. The starting price for this laptop is $3,499. And it goes up to $4,999. So if you're in the market for a deep learning laptop, then you might want to check this out. Otherwise, maybe want to check out something that's a little bit less pricey. You know, that's up to you. But if you'd like to learn more about the Tensor book, link in the show notes. Up next in the show, we have more hardware news, and this time from Star Labs. So we're going to talk about the Starbook and the Byte Mini PC that they recently announced. So Starbook has actually been out for since 2021 in May, and we talked about it on a previous episode. And now this, but at the time, this is a Starbook Mark IV laptop that was only available with eight, the 11th gen Intel Core i3 or Core i7 processors. But now you can configure the Linux-powered laptop with an AMD Ryzen 7 5800 octa-core processor running at 1.9 gigahertz or up to a boost clock of 4.4 gigahertz. And this comes with a 14-inch IPS uh, full HD display, which is 1080p. It also has a backlit keyboard, glass trackpad, quad speakers, and also up to 64 gigabytes of RAM and one and up to two terabytes of SSD storage. It has Thunderbolt 4 support. It has HDMI port, headphone jack, micro SD card reader, all that sort of stuff. Now, Star Labs is really interesting because the way they do certain things is really cool because they have an open philosophy and they're also Linux focused and they have an what they call an open warranty. They say that computers designed for open source software need open warranties. Our one-year limited warranty allows you to take your computer apart, replace parts, install an upgrade, use any operating system you want, and even upgrade your firmware, all without voiding the, the warranty. So that is very cool. And speaking of firmware updates, they have updates for the BIOS, embedded controller, and SSD. They're just a click away with the power of the Linux Vendor Firmware Service, or LVFS. They also have a wide variety of distros you can choose from as a default to install. You don't have to just pick one. You, there's, I think there's at least six, maybe more. Uh, but that's really cool. So if you are looking at a laptop and you're interested in getting one that has AMD power, you can check out the Starbuck Mark IV with AMD. Also, let's talk about the next product from Star Labs, and that is the Byte Mini PC. So the Byte Mini PC has some really good specs for this, this product. It's a Basically, it's a small form factor desktop. It comes with an AMD Ryzen 7 1.9 gigahertz octa-core 5800U processor, which is the one that's also in the laptop. Uh, the graphics are Radeon Vega 8. The RAM is eight gigabytes of 3200 megahertz memory from G-Skill Ripjaws. It has up to 64 gigabytes of memory support. It also comes with 240 gigabytes of SSD storage, and it has support for up to 1920 gigabytes. Not exactly two terabytes, but close. Uh, but this is also Gen 3 PCIe storage, and it has a lot of ports, a variety of them. It's got USB-C, USB-A Type uh, 2, and USB 3. There's four overall total USB-A ports, and there's two HDMI ports. There's also an Ethernet jack, which is actually an unsung hero for these products, these usually these days, because I always want to have an option for that. It also comes with a micro SD card reader on the side. It has VESA compliance, which means you can mount it on the back of a monitor, all sorts of good stuff. And the starting price of this product is $793 USD. If you'd like to learn more about this product or either one of these products from Star Labs, I have links in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. 
How does it do it? Well, Bitwarden provides you with tools to store all of your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill in those passwords on login forms so you don't have to worry about any of that stuff. You can also access your data across many different types of devices, whether it's a web browser, a mobile application, desktop application, or even on the command line, Bitwarden has you covered there. Also, Bitwarden seals and encrypts your private data with end-to-end encryption before it ever leaves your device, so you know you're the only one with access to your data. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And did I mention you can start it for free? You can, but I also think you want to check out their premium account because you can help support this product and these services for just $10 per year. That's less than a dollar per month. And with that, you get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more. You get all of this for less than a dollar per month. That's right, dollar per month. Less than that, actually. So make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. I want to thank Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in this show, we have some really cool news for the business model of a particular application that is in the audio design and production work, uh, workspace. We're talking about Bitwig Studio because they're going rent to own. What does it mean? We'll get to that in a second. First, Bitwig Studio is now available from Splice with a rent to own model. And for those who are unfamiliar, Bitwig Studio is a digital audio workstation application. Bitwig is designed to be an instrument for live performances as well as a tool for composing, recording, arranging, mixing, and mastering audio. It also allows you to do a lot of customizations because it has a modular structure, so it's very flexible in pretty much all aspects of the software. Also, very important, Bitwig is available for Linux, and it has been for quite some time, but this change is something I'm really excited about. So let's talk about Splice. That's the other thing they're doing in collaboration with. So Splice is a high-quality, royalty-free sample library. They offer access to millions of sounds made by top artists, labels, and sound designers, and they also have a rent-to-own program for their plugins. And this is why we're going to talk about it. So the reason I wanted to cover this software on the show is because Bitwig is a professional-level tool for audio production on Linux, and they've had some support for Linux for quite some time. However, there is an issue with it, and that is the Pro version is kind of pricey. Bitwig Studio has a price tag of $399, so it is a bit much unless you are already a professional in this space. However, Bitwig is doing something very interesting. They are doing a subscription-style lease-to-own approach. So you pay a monthly fee like a subscription, but after a certain period of time, you then own the software outright. It's more like financing than a subscription, and that is very, very cool. They're using Splice's rent-to-own program so you can purchase Bitwig Studio in installments of $15.99 per month, and after 25 months, you're done. The software is yours to keep and use as long as you want. You also get access to upgrades during the entire duration of the process of this lease-to-own, rent-to-own approach. And I think this is really cool. I think this is something that other applications should consider because the subscription model is not something that people are really happy about to pay for something forever. But to be able to do something where you say, this is the price of this product, but you can pay on a monthly installment period instead, and then you will eventually own it. And the entire time you're doing the process of the monthly upgrades, you, I mean, uh, the monthly par- par- purchases, you still get the upgrades to the applications. That's just fantastic. I love that. So if you are interested in doing any kind of audio uh, production uh, at all on Linux, and you saw the price tag of Bitwig, and it was like oh, a little bit scary, now you can check out the rent-to-own approach which is much nicer. And actually, it'll be improvements to people who want to try Bitwig, but 
didn't want to put in the full amount. Now they can just put in a monthly thing, try it out. If they don't want to keep it, they don't have to keep it. I think that's just fantastic. So I hope other products will consider this approach in the future. Up next in the show is the latest release of Zettler. Zettler 2.2.5 has been released. This is an open source markdown editor, and they say it's a markdown editor for the 21st century. So it has integrations with various reference managers like Zotero, Jabref. They have multiple different themes. They also have dark mode, which is fantastic. Thank you very much for that. Also, they have something they call file agnostic writing. So they say, enjoy full control over your own files and keep all your notes and texts in one place. They also have um, code highlighting for many different languages, built-in word, word counter, exports with uh, Pandoc, LaTeX, and text bundle to export HTML, PDF, open document, Word, RTF, and like 35 more formats you can export in. Uh, support for knowledge management techniques like Zettelkasten. I'm not sure that's actually how you say that, but think that's close. You can also cite stuff with uh, Zettler using Citeproc. And also if you have an existing literature database that you use, if you're like a writer or you do research, if you're in school, that sort of stuff. They basically say it's a tool for people who uh, need to write books or do research and, you know, jur the journaling stuff for uh, education in the academic world. And it's, they also say that there's an a revolutionary search algorithm for with integrated heat map, which is really cool because the heat map thing basically shows you how often you use certain notes, making it easier to find things that you want to inside of the search results. If you'd like to learn more about Zettler 2.2.5, link in the show notes. So up next in the show is the latest release of OpenSSH 9.0 has been released. So OpenSSH is the widely used open source SSH implementation. For those unfamiliar, SSH stands for Secure Shell. It is a cryptographic network protocol for operating network services securely over an unsecured network. And yeah, that is kind of a weird initialism because it, that would be SS, not SSH. So but I think they chose it because they wanted to make it where when people said the initialism, they wouldn't say they would they more do a shh instead, which I actually, I respect that. I like it. OpenSSH 9.0 is a major release with some uh, significant changes. First up, OpenSSH 9.0 switches SCP from using the legacy SCP slash RCP protocol to now using the SFTP protocol internally by default. This is the change OpenSSH had been working on towards uh, in prior releases, and 9.0 enables this by default. And I think this is sensible with the SCP protocol. For example, it's not possible to perform remote manipulations like deleting files or resume interrupted transmissions. So SFTP is much more flexible here. Another notable change is OpenSSH 9.0 SSH and slash SSHD uses a hybrid streamlined NTRU prime plus X25519 key exchange method by default in order to resist attacks by quantum computers in the future. OpenSSH developers are making this change now to improve security to fend off capture now, decrypt later attacks once quantum computers are available that have the ability to decrypt captured SSH ciphertext. Now, there was an interesting comment on Reddit asking why did they choose this particular one because it's not even a finalist in the NIST and then why not wait for a proper standardization? There's not really full information about why they chose this particular one, but someone said that they think that it's an immediate stopgap against uh, quantum attacks. Not sure why they didn't pick one of the finalists, but they said that I imagine they will update this after the standard has emerged. And that's a good thing to, to note that they are actually putting effort into the quantum computer attacks that have not started yet because they're not really easily available, but eventually will probably happen. We don't know when, but 
they are coming at some day. So it's good that they're already putting work in to make sure that they're having some support against those. Uh, so if you'd like to learn more about OpenSSH 9.0, link in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel and the show, we have multiple ways you can contribute via Patreon, sponsors, and others. You can learn more by becoming a patron at tuxdigital.com contribute. And if you do become a patron, you can join me during the live stream in the recording stadium to discuss stuff between topics and also just hang out every week after the show in the patron-only post-show. You can also support the show by ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt and the This Week in Linux t-shirt at dealinstore.com. Plus, while you're there, check out all the other great stuff like the hats, mugs, hoodies, stickers, coasters, all sorts of great stuff at dealinstore.com. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episodes of Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts, as I'm a co-host of both of those shows on the network. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1700 UTC, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week by going to dealinglive.com. And thanks again for watching. My name is Michael Tunnell, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news.